Father, thank you for the joy that even that we just got to experience when we heard that we're going to be able to be back in our building. And that is amazing. And it is going to be a time for celebration after being gone from it for so long. Um, that being said, today we're really going to start talking for a few weeks about the church and what the church is. And we do not want to lose sight of the fact that the church is your people. And so God, I pray now that you would just show us both today and over the next few weeks who we are called to be as your people in this world. And God, I just want to ask for us that you would just give us this sense of awe and amazement today at what the church is and who the church is. Would you just give us a spirit and, and a heart of we get to be a part of this. God, would you bless my time opening up the word. May you help me to speak clearly. Would you help me to speak boldly? And would you speak to your people now in this moment? Amen. Well, we are starting a series today called Analog Church. It comes from a book written by Jay Kim, who's a pastor in California. And really, the reason that Jay wrote this book was that he said we're growing up and living in an increasingly digitized world. Now, I think we could all say part of that is awesome. I mean, does anyone really miss having to memorize phone numbers? Like, remember that? For those of you who are a little older, growing up, you had to memorize everyone's phone number and how much work that was. Now, I only know my number and my wife's number, and that really is about it. So listen, digital can be awesome because we don't have to memorize phone numbers. We also don't have to memorize directions. Like remember when you used to have to call someone to get step-by-step -step instructions to their house and people start saying, all right, when you see the silvery building on the right, not the one that's solid silver, but the one that has a little mark five feet from the top, you're going to take a right, go about 30 paces. Who knows what a pace is, but you're going to go 30 paces, then take a left and then take a right at the stump. And you're like, whoa, you had to get instructions to get to people's houses. You had to get instructions, I remember, to get to a Wendy's in a part of the town that you weren't familiar with, okay? And maybe you had to even print out MapQuest instructions. Remember when we did that? And they were like 20 pages long. Okay, so listen, digital is awesome in a lot of ways, or even like think about it in church. Anyone remember the days of overhead projectors, Remember those days? If you don't even know what I'm talking about, go Google it. It is a wonder of modern technology. So literally what this was was kind of this boxy looking thing with a little arm that had a shining light on it. And you would take a transparency uh, with words on it. And this is how we would get lyrics for our songs is you would put it up on here and it would reverse image up onto the wall. And here's the deal is when it would do that, sometimes there would be typos. And so you would do what any sleek, well put together quality church would do. You would get um, a dry erase mark and you would cross out the word that had been a typo and then you would write the real word or the correct spelling of the word in its place. So listen, like whether it's that or any of the other stuff I've mentioned, I think digital can be amazing. It's convenient. It has so many benefits. But at the same time, I think what people are beginning to recognize is that while digital is convenient and good and it's not bad, it's also not necessarily best. I think we get this even just from like a superficial level. Think about like music. Uh, digital music has become huge. You have Spotify, you have iTunes. I can listen to any number of things on my iPhone, in my car at any moment, and that's great. But did you know that while digital has been exploding, analog ways of listening to music have also 
been exploding. In 2007, vinyl records uh, accounted for just under a million um, in sales. About a million vinyl records were sold in 2007. This past year, 2020, it was 27 million. And it was interesting that as a uh, director for marketing was being interviewed, he had this great, great quote. He said, digital is the height of convenience, but analog, but vinyl is the height of experience. And I think we get that even in the world we're living in now. I don't know that I right now need to sell you on how in-person togetherness is better than digital. I think we are Zoomed out um, as a culture. We've been on so many Zoom meetings. And even though, again, digital has been so great, uh, let me ask you right now, um, for those of you who have family or have friends who have family just over the border in Canada, you've probably Zoomed with them a lot. What would you give to be able to step just a few feet over the border and give your family a hug? Just the idea of being in person, life on life with real people, I think we've realized this last year, is better. Now, I I get this is a little bit weird to be saying this right now because this is the live stream and the fact that you're watching me is because of digital technology. So it's ironic, I get it. And, And listen, even as I said a few minutes ago when I was talking about us gathering back here, if you're in a spot where you need to continue to join us via the live stream, awesome. No judgment whatsoever. But what J. Kim has raised in his book and what we want to raise is the idea that, hey, digital is convenient and it's going to, be, it's going to help us advance the mission of our church going forward for sure. But there's some things that can only really be done life on life together in the same spaces. I love how Kim says it. He says, the Christian church has always been marked by her ability to create and invite people into transcendent spaces and experiences. The church has always been most dynamic and effective when she has stood in stark contrast to the dominant culture of the day, zigging when the world is zagging. This sort of of creative resistance and prophetic posture is what we need most in the digital age. And the most creative, prophetic way to stand in opposition to the digital age is to lean into analog opportunities, to gather when the world scatters, to slow down when the world speeds up, to commune when the world critiques. And so what we want to do over the next few weeks as a church is talk about what does it look like to be an analog church, to be a church where we are real people in real places together as we live on mission together in our world, as we serve each other, as we live in community together. So we want to talk about those very practical things and what does that look like. But what I thought would be helpful today was to actually just stop and have us ask the question of, well, what is the church? And why does it matter? Why is it valuable? Why should I give my time and my energy to it? When I, when I say the church, the church, I love a simple definition that multiple theologians have given out, is just the people of God, the true people of God in all times and all places. Yet what you also see in the New Testament is that those people congregate in real places and in real times together. So why is the church important? Why does it matter? And I just want to give us some images today to kind of get our minds around. And what I'm hoping is this. I'm hoping that you, that we, maybe by the end of our time in God's word, would move from have to to get to. 
Instead of it, we have to be a part of a local church and we have to come to worship and we have to be in some kind of biblical community and we have to serve. It would become, we get to be a part of a local church in the church. We get to worship together. We get to serve. We get to be in community. I'm praying that we would move from have to to get to. And what I want to do to help us do that is give some images that are in the New Testament of the church. And, and I like to think of it like this. Maybe it's an analogy for how today is going to be a little bit different than what we usually do. Usually we'll look at one text of scripture and dive in and look at it from multiple angles. And that's great. It's what we do week in and week out. And it's the main way we go about things. And that's awesome. It's the way I like to think of it is it's like uh, you go to a mountain, you go to Mount Baker, Mount Rainier or something, and you just look at it for all of its beauty and its worth from every angle you can. That being said, sometimes what's helpful is to zoom out and to see the whole mountain range that that mountain's a part of. And you just are left awe-inspired that, whoa, this is amazing. In the same way, what we're going to do today in Scripture is instead of just looking at one mountain, at one image, at one passage, we're going to look at three different images of the church, and we're going to see how God sees the church. And I just pray that it leaves us in awe. Now, that being said, what, I, what I'd like to do is actually read all of our passages from different parts of Scripture at one time. Again, I just want to kind of give us an overwhelming sense of who and what the church is. I'm going to read this all at once if you're able to, wherever you are to stand. Please stand with me as we hear from God's Word. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 1.22-23, and he put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 1 Corinthians 12.27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Ephesians 5, 25-32, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So three images from all of those passages that we just read and heard. A temple, body, and bride. 
the temple, God's presence in the church, the body, Christ's work through the church, and the bride, Christ's love for the church. And what I now want to do is just look at each of these images briefly. And we could do a whole series around each of these images. So just know we're not going to be able to go too deep into any one passage or image, but I'm just again hoping that as we look at it all together, we're just awestruck at just what we get to be a part of. So, First, the temple, God's presence in the church. When, when Paul uses this word temple, it would have been loaded with meaning for him and, and with the people that he is talking to, especially those with the Jewish background. In the Old Testament, everyone knew that God's presence was everywhere. He was omnipresent. There's not one square inch of existence where his presence is not touched in this entire universe and beyond the universe, okay? So he is everywhere. But yet what we also see in the Old Testament is God had a desire to dwell amongst his people in a special way that was different than everywhere else. So when the Israelites moved from Egypt into the promised land, there was the tabernacle where he was everywhere, but in the tabernacle, he dwelt in a special way amongst the community, amongst the people of God. And then once they made it to the promised land in Jerusalem, eventually a temple was built where again, even though God was everywhere, he was in that temple in a special way where he was nowhere else. And so Paul now takes us and says, hey, now that Christ has done all that he has done, the temple is no longer a specific building in a specific place, but rather is the people of God. We are now the temple. We are now the place where God's presence dwells in a special way that he doesn't other places. Now, now, now listen, I think we need to be very clear right here that in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that each of us individually are in a sense temples of the Holy Spirit. What that means that you and me, when we are reading our Bibles alone and praying alone or worshiping God in our car or anywhere we are alone, God's presence is there with us. I, I want us to hear that. It's so important. But I, I think what can happen sometimes in, in our American culture, we're very individualistic. And so what we forget is that in the majority of places where this temple imagery is used of the church, it's not as us as individuals, but rather as the whole collective body of the church and the church in specific Places. So like in Ephesians 2, what we saw is that the whole structure being joined together, verse 21, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there's each of us individually, but then as it grows together, we grow into a holy temple. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, you are God's temple and that God's spirit is in you, but that you there is not actually singular. In the original language, it's plural. And here I think it's so important to see that like he's actually talking to a church in a real place. So what he is saying is that when these people gather together, they are God's temple and that God's presence is therefore with them in a special way than in other places. I like how Gordon Fee says it, it just kind of helps us bring some clarity. He says, Paul meant by this, not that the spirit dwelt in each of them, true as that would be for him, he's referencing uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, but that the spirit of God lives in your midst. That is, Paul is here reflecting on the church as the corporate place of God's dwelling, who when gathered in Jesus' name, experienced the presence and power of the Lord Jesus in her midst. And so when we come together, and the collective body, a collective church comes together, whether that is as a mass on Sunday mornings and we're all worshiping Jesus and lifting up King Jesus together, or in smaller groups like our GCs gathering in homes or in coffee shops, what this is saying is that God's presence is there in a tangible, real 
powerful way when we gather. I, I think we get this um, in a different kind of way. Uh, let, me, let me ask you this. Are you a fan, a big fan of a sports team? You know, some of you may not be, but I think most of us have usually at least one team that we kind of ride or die with, that we are going to cheer for them no matter what. And, and here's what I know. If you're like me, um, you're going to cheer for your team even if it is like you alone at your house screaming your guts out, either when they are doing awesome or they are doing awful. Okay, So you don't need a crowd of people to cheer for your team. You're going to do that, and you're going to be bummed out when they lose, and you're going to be happy when they win. But here's what I also know is that there is a difference between watching that game alone in your house or on your phone in a car somewhere or on a boat than when you're with 30 to 50,000 other people who all share the same team spirit as you do. I was talking to a couple this past week who they went to a Sounders game for like the first time since the pandemic began and how it was just crazy to be around. I think they said almost 30,000 people who were there cheering that team on and they could literally, it just felt different. So they had watched other Sounders games. They had been cheering their team on from their house but it was different when they gathered with other people in one place. I know this person. I'm a huge Cubs fan. It has not been a happy existence for us. Okay, so if you don't know much about baseball, it took over 100 years for us to win the championship, to win the World Series. This happened about five years ago. I remember when the Cubs got in the World Series. And I've been a lifelong fan. And I'll just be honest, I cried when they won the World Series. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay, so don't judge me too hard when I say that out loud. But anyways, when they got into the World Series, I was that close to buying a ticket. Not to a game. That was going to be impossible for me and it was going to cost way too much money. I was going to buy a ticket to fly to Chicago to be there for if they won the World Series. And why? Because I just wanted to be in and around the stadium and with other Cubs fans so that if they won, I'm even getting chills right now thinking of it, just the incredible experience of getting to be with other people. Now, again, when they won, I was in my house in a living room. All my family was asleep. I screamed. I may have woke them up. I cried a little bit. It was awesome. But I think my experience of that would have been taken to a whole nother level if I'd have been around other people with the same team spirit of me. If that's true with sports, and we're talking about team spirit, how much more if we who individually have the Holy Spirit inside of us collectively gather with other people who have the Holy Spirit inside of them and we become a temple of the Lord together when we're gathered? Uh, here's, I guess, what I'm asking is, what would be different about Redeemer, about us as a church community, if when we gathered for our church services, for our GCs, for our DGs, for whatever it is, if we stopped and thought right now, God is with us. He's in the room in a special way right now. We are the temple of God, but we are also the body of Christ. So we're the temple, God's presence in the church, but we are also the body, Christ's work through the church. Ephesians 1 just blows me away. It says, he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Like that, that verse alone, the idea that the church is Jesus' body and is the fullness of Jesus, that verse alone blows me away. But then what blows me away even more is when I think about Colossians 2.9. So Paul also wrote Colossians, and he said this about Jesus. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness, same word in the original language, play Roma, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So 
Jesus was and is the fullness of God in human form. But then Ephesians just said that the church is also then the fullness of Christ physically here on earth. Just try to get your mind around that. I, I, don't, I, I lack words to be able to even describe or explain that. Other than that, it just is. It's there. That we are somehow the fullness of Christ. We are the representatives, the walking around representatives of Jesus Christ right now on planet earth. And, and also there's this idea, I love it. It's here in Ephesians and it's another place in Colossians where it talks about how Jesus is the head of the church. Now, head would often describe lordship or the idea of Jesus, the way we sit around here is this. Jesus is the senior pastor of Redeemer Church. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church Period. But also, think about what the head does for a second. I think this will maybe bring the idea of a body and our role as the body of Christ alive to you. Um, right now, and this is going to be maybe a little bit weird for you, but just, just roll with me here for a second. If there's other people in the room, um, I want you to give them a high five. Or if it's just you right now, I want you to give yourself a high five, which is really called clapping. So right now, just clap or give someone a high five, okay? okay. Do you know just what happened in your body just now? That was a very simple physical gesture, but can you think with me for a second of how right now, or just now I should say, in your body, millions, maybe even billions of cells work together instantaneously as signals were sent down your spine and through all the different systems of your body to simply go up and did it, and you did it without thinking about it. And where did that come from? From your head, from your brain. Your brain gave the order, and then immediately your body just did it without thinking. That's the picture of the body of Christ and Jesus being the head. Is that as Jesus gives us directions and gives us orders, we immediately take it into action, and he has. And some of the, um, the orders that he's given us has, revolves around, I think, the mission of Christ. That's one way that God works through us. I love Acts 1.1. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I, Luke is writing, have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke had written the Gospel of Luke, and there it was about all that Jesus had begun to do and teach with the implication that it wasn't finished, which is interesting because you know what the book of Acts is? It's then the work of the church where the church carries out as Jesus' body the mission of Jesus in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus accomplishes his mission through us, that we as his body get to be a part of what Jesus threw into motion. How incredible is that? And I also think that another part of us being the body, and you get this in the 1 Corinthians 12 verse, it talks about how you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Well, 1 Corinthians 12, and Pete's actually going to preach on this here in a few weeks when we talk about um, how we can serve in the church, is this. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 is all about spiritual gifts that are used for the common good of the body. And so the idea of being the body of Christ is that we as representatives of Jesus show the love of Jesus to each other in real and tangible ways. That, that if you are a greeter or an usher, that when you greet someone or you take someone to their seat, you're doing it in Jesus' name and you're doing it on his behalf as his representative and as his body. When you take care of kids and RK, you're doing that in Jesus' name and on his behalf and you're showing them the tangible, real love of Jesus. 
I got to experience this in an incredibly meaningful way when I was growing up. I, I shared a story back when I interviewed for this role a few years, a few years, a few months ago, and uh, I talked about how I went through a really tough season in my life where I had been through a lot, and I just got to this place where I hated God, hated God. My dad was a pastor of the church, and I had to keep going, or at least I felt like I did. And so, but here's what I saw is the church rallied around me and rallied around my family when we were going through a tough time. They would cook us meals. They would ask me how I was doing. They would take me out to do fun things to get my mind off some of the bad stuff that was happening in my life. And it struck me that in a time, and listen, I know this is not the experience that everyone has had with the church, but it's mine. In a time when I hated God, I loved the church and I knew the church loved me. But you know what? It's interesting as I've grown older, you know what I've realized? As I hated God, God loved me through the church as the church loved me. Because the church is Jesus' body. And I experienced the love of Jesus in a real and tangible way as the body of Christ loved me. So we are the temple We have the presence of God in our midst as the church, where the body is Christ working through us, but then the final image I want us to come around is the bride. We are the bride of Christ, Christ's love for the church. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I do want to read this opening verse. This is a passage, by the way, before I read it, sorry, it's it's in a sense, in in the overall context, Paul is talking to the Ephesians about how to operate as family units. So he talks to kids and he talks to parents. Right here he's talking to husbands and wives. But what you see in this passage, and that's why I read the whole thing, is you get this picture that Paul has this moment where he says, hey, marriage points to Jesus and his love for the church. Like God invented marriage to give people a faint idea of what Christ's love for the church really is. That, that's why this is here. So that's why, read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I wish we had weeks to talk about this. I can't in my feeble human words capture this. That's why to me actually poetry or songs can help. I love this old hymn. It's called The Church's One Foundation. Its lyrics goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word from heaven He came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. Christ loved and loves the church. Well, what's the church? It's the people of God. Well, who are those people? The people of God. The church are people who used to be rebels and enemies of God. Who from the moment they were born, at every moment, told God no. In fact, have you ever thought of this, that we are the one thing in creation, besides like demons, besides Satan and demons, we're the one thing in all of creation that has the audacity to tell God no. Because like, think of the created order. In, in the Bible, what you often see is like when God said, let there be light, guess what? There was light. When God wanted the waters of the Red Sea to split, they split. When God wanted the water to become firm under Jesus' feet, it became firm. All of creation does just what God wants except for us. All the time we tell God no, no, 
know. And then all the good things he gives us, we don't even stop and say thank you. I don't know about you, but if I was God, I would probably have given up on humanity. But do you know what God did? Jesus still loved us anyways. So much that he left his throne in heaven and took on human flesh. C.S. Lewis, I believe, once talked about it. It would be like us becoming cockroaches to save a cockroach. But yet it says he did it out of love. He sought us and pursued us and lived among us And he tried to woo us to himself to the point where he went on the cross and died for us to forgive us of all those places where we had told God and him no. He sought us anyways. And what that tells me is that he values us and he values the church. You know how much you can determine it if you value something is about what you're willing to give up for it. I, I, I remember when I um, was dating uh, my now wife and I was about to uh, propose to her. Um, I was actually up in Chicago, by the way. I saw a Cubs game. Yeah, awesome. They won that day. And then I saw you two on the front row of a concert. I was the first person in line at like 2 a.m., got front row, had like Bono and the Edge sweating on me. It was actually awesome. And uh, so that's, that's quite a 24 hours, by the way. Hard to top. Um, but then I hopped on a plane in secret. Amy thought I was going back down to Birmingham where we were living at the time. And I actually surprised her in Atlanta. So took a separate flight there, did all these different things just to show her how much I loved her, surprised her with a journal that she thought I had. And I actually got that journal to um, her son, Nate. And Nate read this note from me to her. And I mean, just to make all these links. And why? Because I loved her. And that whole time I didn't, I didn't think, oh, this is a sacrifice. This is miserable. I loved doing it because I valued her. And I was willing to sacrifice the money and the time and the energy to show her that. And that is a little drop of water in the ocean of Jesus' love for us. He gave up everything for his bride because he values us that much. I love C.H. Spurgeon, just said it better than I could, so I'm just going to read a quote from him. Spurgeon says this, The church is the favorite of heaven, the treasure of Christ, the crown of his head, the bracelet of his arm, the breastplate of his heart, the very center and core of his love. This is how Christ, this is how God sees the church. Now, I, I get right now that maybe you're, you're thinking a, a few things. You're thinking, well, <laughs> that, that's nice, but the church is messed up. We have so many failures, and, and we don't live up to any of this, and, and you're right, we don't. And listen, when we fall short of our calling and who we are, we should repent privately, but then, and maybe even publicly, and say, we need to own where we have messed up. But let, let me maybe encourage us to, th- to think differently here. Number one, I would encourage us all to be a little bit more realistic about the church. Let's go back to the marriage analogy. Um, do you realize that marriage is really, really, really hard because you take one sinner with all of their own baggage and hangups and sins and their selfishness and you put them in the same house as another sinner who has all their baggage and hangups and selfishness and all their stuff and then let's just see what happens, right? Now, multiply that times a few hundred and you have a church. 
It's where people who are broken, who are in process with Jesus, come together. And so, yes, we are going to fall short, and God knows that. It's interesting that in so many of these passages I read, did you catch up on when it talks about being the temple? It says we're being built up into it, meaning it's a process. We are not a showcase yet. We're a construction site. We're in process. When it talked about us being the body of Christ in Ephesians 4, it talks about how we are to grow up into maturity, meaning we're not all the way there yet. When it talks about being the bride, this is future tense, that Jesus will present himself to us in splendor. It's not done yet. The Bible is very realistic that we do fall short. One day it will not be that way. One day in eternity we will be perfect And we're not there yet. But here's the second thing we need to remember, that just because we're not there yet doesn't mean we're any less loved by God. Megan Hill has this great quote. She says, The church in eternity will appear more lovely, but it will not be more loved. That right now, in spite of all the church's failures, She is the apple of God's eyes. She is the temple. She is the body. She is the bride. This is what we get to be a part of. And I just want to ask us, what would change if we saw the church as a whole and the church specifically at Redeemer the way God sees his church? What would happen in your life if you saw yourself the way God sees you? Maybe something good to reflect on. I think, though, what would happen is what I said earlier. Instead of us thinking, oh, we have to go to church, we have to do this or that, we would say, we get to be a part of this. What privilege and what grace. And what an amazing God who covers over all the ways that we have failed to live up to what we have read about and talked about today. Well, I want to pray for us, and and I encourage you, though, uh, now, whether it's in person or, again, via the live stream, to come back now to the next few weeks as we talk about, okay, in light of all this, what does it look like for the church to live out its calling in an analog way, in person, with each other, together, in common spaces and communities? I encourage you to be there, but in the meantime, let's pray for God's grace to just drive these truths home into our hearts. God, I thank you so, so much for what we've seen today, and God, I really do want to pray that we would just be in awe. I'm thinking right now of um, in Ephesians 1, where Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, even before he's about to say that they are the fullness of Christ on earth. And he asks that their eyes of their hearts would be opened and that they would be given understanding so that they could know the calling and the riches of the glorious inheritance which was theirs. In the same way, I'm praying for us as a collective body of Christ here in Whatcom County and even spread out beyond that you would open our eyes to see ourselves how you see us. Would you help us to realize that we are a part of the only organization, of the only entity that is eternal on planet Earth? Oh, would you fill our hearts with passion for your church because your heart is filled with passion for us. Would you forgive us for anywhere we have fallen short of how we view the church and how we view ourselves? But would you now drive us, though, in light of that, to the cross where you paid for your bride 
and you covered over all of our shortcomings. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.